And welcome to the 27th of February 2024 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, and as always, it's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, we'll visit Conover Cottage in Belhaven. Artist Whitman Bailey shares his perspective on Greenwich Harbor in winter in 1930. You'll hear about the Green Twachman House on Round Hill Road as we close Black History Month. In Greenwich life as it is and was, Erwin Edwards recalls the old market boats in the first sloop race on the Sound. And you'll hear about crimes from Greenwich history, news of upcoming events and exhibits, including one about six famous women photographers, a farm in the backcountry, and much more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. Eastern Neurological Services of New York offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Dr. Judy Gao, MD, a top New York neurologist, specializes in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurological Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders, including general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Now, the most trusted platform for medical products you need is available for you at HealthSite.com. 
pro.com. Shop online for the best in preventative medicine and health maintenance. These products are used by Dr. Gao and her family, and if they're good enough for them, well, they're good enough for you as well. Visit easternneurologic.com or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Greenwich, Connecticut's Gilded Age era was a remarkable time. Wealthy, successful Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and designed landscapes. On today's shower journey, we'll take us to Conover Cottage in Belhaven, one of the first and most spectacular Gilded Age residence parks in America. Today's journey back in time was made possible by Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard. The principal owners of Conover Cottage were William E. Conover and Alfred Cowles. It was built in 1888. The address is 16 Otterock Drive in Belhaven, of course. The architect Oscar Teal, and it was altered circa 1900. Oscar Shoot Teal, who lived from 1847 to 1934, was born on Prince Street in New York, the son of a blacksmith father and a concert singer mother. Teal's father moved the family to Brooklyn early, where, in addition to his blacksmithing, he took care of a building called Columbian Hall. Magicians, sword swallowers, stone eaters, strong men, fat women, snake handlers, and persons of intrigue regularly performed on the Columbians' stage, instilling in young Oscar a quote-unquote predilection toward the marvelous and the mysterious, as he wrote in his book Higher Magic, Magic for the Artist, who was published in 1920, by the way. Teal grew up to be a semi-professional magician. He was president of the Society of American Magicians and a researcher for the great Harry Houdini. Like Houdini, Teal was a crusading anti-spiritualist, quote-unquote, holding forth at lecture halls on the frauds perpetuated by mediums and fortune-tellers. From his father, whom he described as an artist artisan, quote-unquote, Teal inherited a love of building things, quote, the shops were my playground, unquote, he wrote. Teal studied at the Cooper Union, apprenticed with Charles Dugan, known for his brownstones along Fifth Avenue, and established his own architecture practice in New York in 1878. Teal was an architect of genuine, if unorthodox, talent. He designed an excellent brick Romanesque store and lofts at 468-472 West Broadway, a brick Romanesque church in Patchogue, now on the National Register of Historic Places, and churches of various styles near his home in New Jersey. His church designs tended toward the strikingly original, none more so than the Seventh-day Baptist Church in Plainfield, a brooding, bizarre stone-block construction with a rounded nave, 
Gothic windows, a brick bell tower, and an adjoining brick turret uh, crowned with terracotta angels. In Belhaven, Teal designed a marvelous and mysterious house for William E. Conover, who died in 1902. Conover followed his father, James S. Conover, who lived from 1818 to 1894, into the business of luxury fireplaces, mantles, tiles, and assorted hearth place trimmings and brass works. J.S. Conover and Company showrooms on 23rd Street in New York City were said to be spectacular. Indeed, if one were a wealthy man building himself a palace in the late Victorian age, he likely would have gone to J.S. Conover to procure fireplaces that were really works of art. But the Conovers overextended themselves. This, combined with the Panic of 1893, in which stocks collapsed and banks declined to expand credit, spelled the end of the great firm after 50 years. So it might be said that before going bust, William E. Conover enjoyed five happy years in his Oscar Teal confection, a Queen Anne with traces of Tudor and Romanesque styles. They, there were half-tempered gables, aureole windows, a wide comb over the second-floor balcony, French arch top and gable dormers, dark green painted wood shingles, tall decorative chimneys, and the expected Queen Anne wraparound veranda. If this sounds like a hodgepodge, it is. But so was Harry Hobson's Richardson's Watts Sherman House in Newport, which delighted in running textures and patterns up against one another. It's sometimes said that all Queen Anne and shingle-style houses descended from that single example. Conover Cottage's original floor plan, which is pictured in the book, by the way, is particularly fun to examine. Among other things, it shows Teal's tendency toward geometric layouts. The rounded turret of the library and bedroom above, the squared bay of the drawing room and bedroom above, and the canted bay of the dining room. The plan was a pleasing flow, as many large-roomed Victorians did, the ceilings were ten feet tall, with fireplaces arrayed around the perimeter. These fireplaces befit the Conover name in its expertly, expertly, carved wooden mantles, and colorful tile surrounds. All in all, Conover Cottage gave off a dark but tantalizing storybook air. Not long after J.S. Conover and Company went out of business, Conover Cottage had a new owner, Alfred Abernathy Cowles, who lived from 1845 to 1916, head of the Ansonia Clock and Ansonia Brass Companies, the latter of which Cowles merged with other brass concerns to form American Brass. Ansonia refers to the Naugatuck River Valley town, not far from New Haven, named for industrialist Anson Phelps. It was there that Phelps found his brass works in 1844. He added the clock factory six years later. Cows reportedly descended from Eli Terry, who lived from 1772 to 1852, the Henry Ford of the clock world, inventor of quality, mass-produced clocks that average citizens could afford. Just before the turn of the century, Cowles put a large addition on the back of Conover Cottage, which he called Meadowbrook Terrace. There was a new rectangular hip-roofed wing with an extensive loggia, along with the Roman brick-blocked square extension created on the western elevation. These additions increased the house's square footage by about a third. 
Cowles also enclosed the tower balcony, painted the house white, and planted formal gardens. Somewhere along the line, perhaps under Cowles, a pair of tall Beaux-Arts dormers were replaced with more suitable gable dormers. It is likely that at the same time that Cowles implemented the additions to the main house, he also purchased the adjoining parcel to the south that contained Mason Cottage. The relocation of Mason Cottage enabled him to not only add privacy to what had been a rather confined lot, but also allowed for the extension of his grounds to include a substantial formal garden on the former foundation of Mason Cottage. In conjunction with the opening of the lots in the second addition to the park, extensive acreage was now available on the western side of Meadowwood Drive and the north side of Bush Avenue. Cowles purchased 3.6 six acres, where those two streets merged and relocated Mason Cottage to that property across the street. He also built a large new carriage house, along with a number of additional outbuildings and a massive kitchen garden that serviced the estate. Around 1906, Cowles also purchased the property to the east of the kitchen gardens, where Robert Bruce had moved one of his Mayo Avenue rental cottages to after selling their lots to Mr. Martin. The house was occupied by Cowell's son, Russell, who would take over running the Insonia Brass Company from his father. Russell later went on to move farther down Otterock Drive, where he bought Greyhurst in 1915. He demolished it and replaced it with a new manor house, which he named Willowstone. See Greyhurst, Willowstone, on page 82 of Victorian Summer, by the way. Charles W. Morse later owned Conover Cottage. He was an unscrupulous New York financier, steamship owner, and American Ice Company president. Morse played a major role in causing the Knickerbocker Trust Company to fail, triggering the panic of 1907. Oh dear. In 1908, Morse was convicted of, among other things, misappropriating funds, and he served time in the Tombs Prison Complex in Lower Manhattan, earning the nickname Ice Frap for his cool demeanor. <laughs> Quote, you might think he'd live here all of, all of his life, one jailhouse witness noticed, noted. Morris reportedly continued to play the markets from his cell. In 1921, while living in Belhaven, he was charged with war profiteering, but this time beat the rap, though convicted of lesser charges. After Morris, a family named Teal purchased the house. The wife ran a small day school out of the house from the late 1930s through the early 1950s. Today, Conover Cottage has been restored by its current owners. It is painted in tones of grayish teal with white trim and has a slate roof in place of the old green shingle roof. The interior use of the floor plan has changed along with modern tastes. The front door has been relocated to what was formerly a a secondary service entrance off the Porte Couture, and the former living hall has been reconfigured and combined with the library to create a large living room. The main staircase was reoriented to provide access to the new circulation pattern created when the front door was repositioned. A swimming pool now is located where the formal gardens were once sited on top of the old foundation for Mason Cottage. The outbuildings across the street now function as separate residences, and the kitchen garden was replaced by a speculative colonial-style house built 
in the 1980s. The best-kept secret in Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story in a restored historic mansion that inclusively brings people together thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. When you enter the doors of the 1858 Solomon Mead House, you'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and ambiance of Coffee for Good at 48 Maple Avenue. Serving coffee, teas, and delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good is a self-sustaining teaching platform that trains people with special needs who acquire the skills and self-confidence they need to thrive in the community. Voted Best Coffee Shop by the readers of Greenwich Magazine, honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association, and now the Jack Moffley Nonprofit Leadership Award, Coffee for Good is open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Enjoy free parking, free Wi-Fi, as well as year-round indoor and outdoor seating, a popular destination for gatherings, meetings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church in the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Visit coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of Coffee for Good, your next hire is just a coffee away. Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on-the-job training platform with Abilis for people with special needs? Graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. In the winter 2024 edition of the Greenwich Historical Society's newsletter, an announcement was made about a Twachman painting acquisition. And let me just share this with you. Greenwich Historical Society is proud to announce the acquisition of an important work of art by American Impressionist painter John Henry Twachman, who lived from 1853 to 1902, a central figure in the Cascobart colony. Front Porch, which was painted circa 1896 to 99, is a vibrant depiction of the south entrance of Twachman's home on Round Hill Road in Greenwich, where he lived with his family beginning in 1889. The canvas features a sun-dappled view of the house's neoclassical-inspired portico and front porch balustrade architectural elements added by the artist in 1895. Now, the thing that is very interesting about Twachman's house um, is that it was built by an African-American gentleman by the name of Alan Green, and he is the third great-grandfather of Teresa Vega, who I have mentioned before and has had a guest, as a guest um, on this uh, show. Uh, I consider her to be Greenwich, Connecticut's foremost authority on its African-American um, history. By the way, I should tell you that she maintains a an incredible blog site full of incredible resources and writings about her research called Radiant Roots, Boricua Branches, 
Um, and I have posted that on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show uh, podcast Facebook wall. I would urge you to go and uh, not only like the page, but also please to, um, to access that. Uh, it is a remarkable uh, blog full of um, all sorts of interesting um, examples of um, African-American history. The, um, uh, the Green Truckman House, which was built in uh, 1845, and it was built by Alan Green, um, again, Teresa Vega's third great-grandfather, um, again, built in 1845, is a landmark home. It was plucked by the Greenwich Historical Society. We're very glad for that. And it was also in a unique community, um, in Greenwich called Hangroot. And if you go to radiantrootsboricuabranches.com, uh, you will find out a lot more about Hangroot. It is an incredible story about an incredible community that once existed here in Greenwich, Connecticut. News reached the people of Greenwich, courtesy of the Greenwich Graphic, published on February 17, 1883, that yes, the telephone was finally coming to Greenwich. And the story goes as follows. Greenwich to have it in operation very soon. Wires to be put up within 10 days. Interview with manager Butler. Hello, said someone to our local a day or two ago in a Stamford restaurant. Hello, was the reply, the voice of a telephone man being recognized. Been coming down to see you, was the answer. I've been trying to see you, was the answer. When are you coming to Greenwich? And are you going to leave us out in the cold on the telephone question? This was sub-manager Butler of the telephone company who had addressed us, and immediately we began to pump and learn from him that he was waiting in Stamford with a gang of men for orders to begin work in Greenwich. Quote, you may expect me there at any moment, he said. We shall build a line from Stamford to Porchester. Then Stamford and Greenwich can talk with New York. It would surprise you to see what change a telephone makes in a place. There's Mystic, one of the dullest places I've ever struck. <laughs> it was tough work to get a line started there. But we now have 36 subscribers in that small place, and everyone is enthusiastic over telephone. Greenwich is now the only town in this state where the telephone is a stranger. Stamford is the banner town of the state. In proportion to its inhabitants, we have the largest number of subscribers there. Yes, we'll be down to Greenwich before many days, unquote. We hazard the opinion, as we left him, that Greenwich only needed a little shaking to wake her up, and when fairly awake, twas a cold day when she got left. Just before going to press, Mr. Butler came in to our sanctum and said, quote, You may expect to have the telephone working in about ten days. Have received orders to go ahead. Bad weather can only interfere now. Mr. H. P. Frost, the general manager of the company, will be in town some day next week to make final arrangements. Unquote. It is evidently or earnestly hoped that our residents will give the company every encouragement and lend them every aid in their power. Telephone in these days, to many people, is not a luxury, but a necessity. Mm. 
You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead, that's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. A gentleman by the name of Whitman Bailey is someone that you may have heard me talk about here on the um, on past shows. Uh, he was a uh, Greenwich resident uh, who lived here in the early years of the nineteenth um, century, or the excuse me, the twentieth century. Oh dear! And um, Whitman Bailey was a very, very interesting soul. He wrote about um, uh, aspects of uh, Greenwich history, but he also drew illustrations, sketches, if you will. The thing that made Whitman ba- Bailey uh, different from all of the other artists uh, in the area was that he was colorblind. So what he did was that he just created um, hand sketches um, and had these published in various uh, publications, including the Greenwich News and Graphic. The story today comes from the Tuesday, February 11th, 1930 edition. And the title of this is When Winter Touches Greenwich Harbor. One can easily imagine a winter's day in the same section when it was known as Rocky Neck. Great snow-capped cliffs must have risen abruptly from the shore, where March grasses crackling under the stiff coat of ice, and where wind-swept pines, growing almost to the water's edge, stood, out in their clumped branches, dark against a gray horizon. Surely it must have been a desolate spot, even up to 1836, when the curving shoreline was laid out. Braided pearls, after the storm... The, the, the house lots by the firm known as the Rocky Neck Land Company. Doubtless there were days in winter when one could walk across a stretch of roughed ice, and other days when great cakes cut into squares and triangles by the ebb and flow of tide went flowing in, uh, out into the sound. Even today, a February blast gives Greenwich Harbor the bleakness of a winter etching. Despite the signs of life about them, the cold docks looked dark and desolate, and the long barges fashioned to them suggested grim trips with blunt prows abutting through the icy sheet. In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store and artist's cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby's Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup. Ample free parking member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org.
Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we pause to observe that in 1906, the Greenwich Police Department was formed and founded, um, and that we still live in a rather imperfect world in which crimes are still committed. Anyway, the story that I have for, t- for you today is dated February 20th, 1914. It was covered in the Greenwich News, and the title of this is Peddler Rob says two men at North Mayanus took watches and money. Hmm. Samuel Jacobs, a Porchester peddler, claims to have been held up by two men on the River Road, Mayanus, at six o'clock last Thursday evening and robbed of four watches and $54. Jacobs claims that one of the men struck him on the back of the head, knocking him unconscious, and that his peddler pack was then looted. He stated that one of the men first asked him to show him a cheap watch, which he sold to him for a dollar. The stranger handed him a $10 bill, and Jacobs thereupon proceeded to take uh, his pocketbook from an inside pocket. It was then that he was assaulted. A quarter of an hour later, he regained consciousness and went to a nearby house, told his story, and aid was summoned. Constable George T. Jones has since been on the case, but has been unable to discover who the highwaymen were. Well, it's time for Greenwich Life as it is and was, a column that used to appear in the Greenwich News and Graphic, uh, circa 1920, uh, and here and there. (laughs) Anyway, um, this one was by Erwin Edwards, and it dates from Friday, October 8th, 1920. And the title of this is The Old Market Boats and the First Sloop Race on the Sound. Quote, your writings about Captain John Lockwood and of his sail up the city in the teeth of the northeast gale met my eye and called back to my mind that trip which I had well nigh on forgotten, said an old-time skipper of Greenwich, one of the few left along the coast of that fast-disappearing type of men. Quote, that trip and the time he made was talked about by every skipper along the shore. How he ever made Hell Gate, we couldn't tell, but then Captain Lockwood knew how to handle his boat as no one else could. Yes, I remember that trip well, and Captain Lockwood too, and I remember the two market boats he sailed for many a year, the Milton and the James K. Polk. They tied up at the upper landing, which was a busy place, until the steam cars came. Greenwich must have been the home port for a number of vessels in those days, we said. Yes, it was. Wait a minute, I hear some people called those boats yachts. They weren't yachts. A yacht is a pleasure boat, as you'd think everybody ought to know. A sloop may be a yacht, but not when she is a market boat. See? Those boats in the carrying trade were called market boats, sloops, and schooners. The last had two masts, the sloop only but one, as every schoolboy knows, and yet both were market boats. More sloops and market boats sailed the sound from Greenwich than from any other port along the shore, either side of the sound. The reasons were that more market stuff went from Greenwich to the city, that would be New York City, than any from those in the shore. In those times, Greenwich was an agricultural community and helped supply the New York market with apples, potatoes, and such things as, and oysters, too. 
Greenwich had fine harbors, none better on this side of the Sound. There was Rocky Neck, now Greenwich Harbor, and the Mayanus River, up which were Coscob and Mayanus, besides other harbors. Can you tell the names of the market boats and their skippers, we asked? Yes, some of them. There was the Milton and the James K. Polk, sailed by Captain Lockwood. They tied up at the upper landing. I seem to forget the names of the boats of the lower landing, Coscob. At Rocky Neck, there was the Theodore, Captain Caleb Merritt. She was a market boat. The Comet, Captain Joseph G. Meade. She carried stone to the city from the Joseph G. Meade's quarry. The schooner Nelson, Captain Bush, she was a coastwise vessel. Her home port was Greenwich. The last one to furl her sails for good was Captain Holmes' boat. Some years ago, two steamers stopped here, going to and coming from the city. But gradually the business died away, and they had to give up calling. Captain Holmes found out that he couldn't compete with steam, and he sold his sloop and bought a steamboat, the Maid of Kent. That ran for a few years. After his death, the business was taken over by a company, and they had to tie up the steamer for good a while ago. There wasn't freight enough to keep the boat going. The market boats made weekly trips back and forth from the city, sailing as nearly as possible on a certain day and always at high tide. There are no yacht races on the Sound today that can compare in any way with the races of those old-time market boats. These present-day yachts races are mere playthings. This was due to the intense rivalry existing between them. Those races were the real thing, the aim being to see which would pass Hellgate in the load and arrive at their dock in the city first. Especially was this rivalry keen as between the market boats on the Connecticut side and Long Island side of the Sound, particularly between Huntington, Oyster Bay, and Cold Spring Harbor Sloops and the Greenwich market boats. They knew over across the way about the time the Greenwich sloops would appear, and they would lay in wait for them. As soon as they saw a Greenwich boat come out of the harbor or the Mayanus River, then the race began. Did you ever hear about the great race between the Stella and the Abile? It has been said that this was the first boat race ever held on Long Island Sound, and I guess it was the first real race. I mean for money. The Stella was owned by Captain George W. Marshall, who was reckoned one of the best skippers of the Sound. His home was in Coscob. The Stella was built at the Palmer and Duff shipyard in Coscob by Captain Marshall and Amos Brush from designs of Captain William Chard. She stood rather high out of the water and had a sharp bow. The Abile was a Long Island sloop and her home port was Huntington. She was commanded by Captain Samus. The feeling of rivalry became so intense between these two sloops, raided the fast on the sound, that a match for a purse of a thousand dollars was made, the distance to be three hundred miles. The start to be made from Sands Point to sail up the sound and back. All about on the water were craft filled with expectant onlookers from along the coast, and each had their favorite backed to win. The Stella went ahead and stayed there, both vessels carrying full sail, 
sped along with speed, both well handled. The first part of the day all went well. In the afternoon, a thunderstorm came up, and the wind hitting the abeel first, she sped ahead, at which the Long Island boatmen began to cheer up and became wild in their hurrahs, while the Connecticut folks muttered something about luck. The squall was soon over, and the wind died away. The Stella, by skillful maneuvering, passed the abeel and regained her place in the lead, and won the race by drifting over the line. Which settled the question that the Stella was the fastest sloop on the sound? Still, those fellows across the way maintained that the Abeel wasn't fairly beaten, which claim wasn't within reason. That the Greenwich boat was the better one of the two, and the fleetest was recognized by every skipper that sailed the sound. "'Twas the steam-cars and the steamboats, and also because Greenwich had gradually given up farming, and there was no produce to carry to the city, which made the market-boats go out of business. What a change there has been in everything about Greenwich in my lifetime. It's all new. As we start to close today's show, and we look forward to the month of March, which is Women's History Month, I wanted to announce to you Life Six Women Photographers. It's an upcoming exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society that opens on March 6th. Greenwich Historical Society presents the work of six of the few pioneering women photographers employed by Life magazine between the late 1930s and the early 1970s, whose iconic images captured a quickly evolving world and helped create modern photojournalism. Featuring over 70 images by Margaret Burke White, Nina Lean, Lisa Larson, Hansel Meath, Martha Holmes, and Marie Hansen, the exhibition details how these photographers and their work were integral to creating what life founder and editor-in-chief Henry R. Luce, a longtime Greenwich resident, called the American Century. Life Six Women Photographers has been organized by the New York Historical Society and will be on view in the Frank Family Foundation Special Exhibitions Gallery from March 6 to July 7, 2024. The exhibition will be accompanied by a series of public lectures, film screenings, and photography workshops. This exhibition has been generously supported by Joyce B. Cohen, with additional support from Susan Lee Scumpf, Jerry Spire, Robert A. M. Stern, and Northern Trust. Support for this exhibition at the Greenwich Historical Society has been generously provided by Josie Merck. And again, that opens on March 6th. By all means, please put that in your calendar and be sure to stop by the Greenwich Historical Society. To learn more, visit GreenwichHistory.org. Located in the backcountry area of Greenwich, Connecticut, there is a farm, a six-acre one, with beautiful soil that I think is one of the most extraordinary places that I've been to in a long time. It's called Versailles Farm. Now, in colonial times, this area of Greenwich was the breadbasket for New York City. Um, and, the, and there's a part of this farm um, that was the site of an abandoned agricultural railroad dating from circa eight, seven, 1876, sorry, uh, that quite, quite frankly was never built. Um, it is a place that exists in harmony with the land. It grows very, very wonderful crops. And I want to let you know that I am very excited about Versailles Farm because I and a group of us are in the process right now of acquiring it. 
um, and we want to keep this place as a farm per the wishes of its founder and owner. And um, I'm, I'm just, I can only tell you that I'm just very excited about uh, Versailles Farm and its future. So I will keep you up to date on this, but it is something that we are very excited about. And um, you will be hearing from me about this. And when we get this done, I'm going to be inviting you to come and to visit us at Versailles Farm up in northwestern Greenwich. Thank you for listening to the 27th of February 2024 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host, and as always, it's a pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. By all means, please contact me at Greenwich and Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Listen to past shows anytime, 24 hours a day, seven d- days a week, by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. There is no pay platform, by the way, so it's all free, thanks to our sponsors. Look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. And by all means, please check out the ongoing roster of events and exhibits at the Greenwich Historical Society by going to GreenwichHistory.org. And I would urge you to consider joining as a member of the Greenwich Historical Society. There's lots of rewards, and you'll be glad you did. My friends, our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 5th of March, 2024. I look forward to being with you then. You take good care. Bye-bye now.